Well, it is so good to be here with all of you in Medina today. It's been a minute since I've been able to be back and just share with you guys. But I want to first of all say thank you for your commitment to Northside Medina. Thank you for showing up outside at the square and outside at the park. Thank you for being here as well. I know it means so much, not just to me, but especially to Jeff and to Brenna, um, just the commitment that you guys are making. Uh, So thank you. Keep it up. And I want to say invite somebody next Sunday to come with you. Invite somebody to come back and worship and grow uh, and serve together. Can you do that for me? Yes, okay, all right. Y'all must have forgot how I preached. I like audience participation here. So we're going we're gonna to roll with this. We're going to keep going. But I am excited. Today we begin a brand new two-week series that I think has the impact, uh, the, the ability to impact us in a great way. Jeff and I are going to be talking about loving people, which is good, right? Because that's what God commanded us to do. As Jesus followers, we must love everyone. But how many of us know that there are just some people that are a little bit harder to love than others, right? Amen, right, yeah, uh-huh, right, Joe's got it. So there are some people that are harder to love than others. And I think two of the most difficult people to love are those that try to control us and those that are overly critical of us. Those that try to control us and then those are overly critical. So in this series, we're gonna refer to these people as relationship vampires, what do vampires do? They, they suck your blood. What do relationship vampires do? They suck the life out of you. They drain you emotionally, mentally, and even spiritually if we allow them to do that. So our goal this Sunday and next is to figure out how to love the people that can suck the life out of us. Today we're going to talk about control freaks. Just by a show of hands, how many of you know someone that can be controlling? How many of you know someone that can be controlling? All right, if the person beside you jabbed you or tried to yank your hand down quickly, then that means you're sitting beside a control freak. Maybe you even got that little evil glare when you tried to raise your hand. All right, we all know somebody that can be like this. Unfortunately, many of us may have been really hurt by somebody that tried to control us. Maybe it came from an authority figure in your life when you were younger. Maybe this hurt came from a close friend or even a family member. What I've seen is that the people who try to control us, more often than not, they're not usually malicious about it. Sometimes they're just insecure. Sometimes they're just needy. They need things. Sometimes they hurt you because they think they know what is best for your life, when in reality, they don't. And if they don't get what they want, what's the response? They whine, they cry, they complain, they give you the cold shoulder, they give you the silent treatment. Sometimes they may even walk away in disgust, but eventually they always come right back and they try to start that process over again. However it is that they treat you, you always wind up walking on eggshells around them. Am I right? You walk on eggshells. Now, if we don't recognize their controlling nature, and if we don't learn how to love them as God asks us to, then they will continue to suck the life out of us. They'll continue to drain us. It's like an emotional black hole that we pour into, but no matter what we do, no matter how much we give, it's never enough. So how do we love those people? We first have to figure out the tactics that they use in order to try to control us. And there's always two. It's the same two every time. 
the two tactics that controllers like to use to take control over us are always threats and guilt. Say that out loud with me. Threats and guilt. Well, let's talk about threats first. In some form or fashion, they may verbalize the threat or they may imply it. You better do this or you're going to regret it. You better perform or you're going to be punished. If you don't do what I want you to do, then you're not going to get fill in the blank. That's a threat. Maybe it's your boyfriend who says, I'm going to break up with you if you don't sleep with me. Maybe it's your boss who says, you're going to get fired or demoted if you don't continue working all those hours of overtime. It may be a spouse who threatens to leave. It might be a sibling who threatens to tell your parents about what you did that you knew was wrong unless you continue doing their homework for them, right? They're using it as a blackmail. That's a threat. Whoever that controller is, they always put you on edge. You're constantly trying to appease them, which increases your anxiety. Controllers also use guilt. Once again, this is either verbalized or implied. And they may say something like, after all I've done for you, you can't do this one thing for me? Come on. I thought we were friends, and you won't even help me out just a little bit? Or, you call yourself a Christian? What kind of Christian are you really? Has anybody ever said that to you? Those two tactics are always the same, threats and guilt, which lead to anxiety and anger within us. So how do we love those people who either intentionally or unintentionally try to take control of our lives. They try to manipulate us. Well, there's a fantastic example in the Bible that we're going to look at today. So if you brought your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, or you can use your Bible apps on your phone. We don't have the screen up yet. It'll be coming in a couple of weeks. So Matthew 16, verses 21 through 24, that's our key text for the day. And to set this up, I just need to tell you what it's about. Jesus is having a conversation with one of his closest friends, Peter. And Jesus here, he's explaining to his disciples that he must fulfill God's will by laying down his life. But Peter, good old Peter, he's got totally different plans. So let's pick up verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders the chief priest, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Well, let me pause right there because I think we see something that controllers often do. Just like Peter, they like to take the person they're trying to control to the side. They like to isolate that person so that they can manipulate them, so that they can yell at them and get them to do whatever it is. Because it's easier if that's one-on-one versus in a group of people. And this is what Peter does. Let's continue. So Peter says, never, Lord, never is this going to happen. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So from this brief encounter, from these four verses, we find three very important things that we all should know in order to love those who are trying to control us. And if you want to jot it down in your outlines, write this down. Here's the first thing. 
First of all, we need to know our calling. Know your calling. Jesus was crystal clear about what his calling was. There was no mistaking why God sent him from heaven to earth. And over and over throughout the New Testament, as he's walking around the towns, as he's preaching, he makes it very clear. A couple of examples, Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. Luke chapter 5, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And then in Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was crystal clear about his calling. And that's what he's trying to tell Peter. Peter, I've got to do this. I must suffer and die, but I'm going to come back to life three days later. This is what God's will for me is. For you to love those who are trying to control you, you must clearly know your calling. What I've seen happen, though, so many times that prevents us from recognizing or knowing our calling is that we mistakenly believe that our calling has to be this huge, grandiose idea. Like we have to find a cure for cancer or we have to stop world hunger. And if it's not something that huge, that audacious, then we mistakenly think that it doesn't really count as a calling. Well, I think that's wrong. In fact, I would argue that our calling isn't always specific. Sometimes it's that specific. But more often than not, it's very general in nature. And most times our calling directs us towards a person or towards people, those that we're closest to. I've got a friend named John. I was just having a conversation with him two weeks ago in the lobby at church. And I was asking him to share a little bit of his testimony with me. And he shared about his calling. He said, Eric, my calling has been very clear from day one, and that is to be an influencer to the influencers. And I thought that was a, such a neat statement. And it's very general, actually, to be an influencer to the influencer. So I asked him to expand upon that. And he said he rubbed shoulders with a very wealthy, very powerful people within Medina County. And his number one job is to give them spiritual guidance, spiritual counsel, encouragement, and accountability. That's what he does every single day. And he shared with me that how he does that and where he does that, that often changes. But the calling never changes. He is to be an influencer to the influencer. So what does that mean for you? Well, maybe your calling is to love your spouse well every day. Maybe your calling, if you've got children, is to lead them spiritually every single day. Or maybe right now in this season of your life, your calling is to graduate high school, to go to college, to graduate college. Maybe your calling isn't to the specific job that you're at. Maybe it's to the person that you're working with at that job, and you're called to be a witness to him or to her because God knows that they need you in their lives. I know what my calling is. It's very clear. I'm called to be the hands, the feet, and the mouth of Jesus for my wife, for my children, for my friends, and for my church. And that means that I must make disciples that make disciples that make disciples regardless of the cost. That is what I must do. Now, how I do that and when I do that and what role I do that in, that's going to change. But my calling doesn't. It is to be the hands, the feet, and the mouth 
of Jesus. But there's just one problem. I'm a people pleaser. And if I were to guess, a lot of us are people pleasers. My wife just laughed because she knows it's true. We both are people pleasers. I don't like to let anyone down. I am constantly wanting people to like me, to think that I'm doing a good job, to give that encouragement. And then if somebody gets angry because of something I've said or done, oh man, that really upsets me. That really frustrates me and I try to fix it. But this is the same problem that many of us have. How many of you would say you're people pleasers? A lot of us, a lot of us, right? We battle with this. What I've learned though, for my years of people pleasing, is that this is actually a form of idolatry. People pleasing is a form of idolatry because we are wrongly putting somebody else's opinions of us above what God says we are. We're putting people's opinions of us above what God's calling for our life is. And that's why it's wrong. That's why it's so important that you and I know our calling. So what does calling do? Calling clarifies. There are people who want to control us and say, you should do this or you should do that. You should go here and work. You should go there. You should play this instrument or do this sport. There are people in our lives that think they know what you should be doing with your time and your talents and your treasures and your life. But guess what? They are not you. They are not you. So when you know what you're called to do, it creates clarity. And clarity prevents the uh, waters of our life from being muddied up. Clarity keeps you from being pulled away from God's will into what somebody else may want you to do. And even though that may be a good thing, it's not the best thing. So we have to uh, know our calling. The second thing is this. You have to know when somebody's trying to control you. And I know that seems basic or elementary, but it's important. Know, recognize when somebody is trying to manipulate your life. This is what's going on in Matthew 16. Jesus explains that he must suffer and die very soon, but he's coming back. Peter, though, vehemently disagrees. He's like, no way. Jesus, this is never going to happen to you. I'm not going to allow it. Now ask yourself, was Peter the worst guy that ever lived? Verbal response. No. Did Peter hate Jesus? Did Peter try to intentionally pull Jesus away from the will of his father? No, not intentionally. Unintentionally did, but not intentionally. He didn't do those things because Peter was a great guy. He loved Jesus. He was one of his closest followers. He gave his life for Jesus. However, in that moment, he allowed his personal desire to trump God's desire for Jesus' life. In that moment, that's what he did. That's what he allowed. But Peter was a great guy who often put his foot in his mouth. And what we find just verses before this exchange between Jesus and Peter, we find that Peter actually got it right. He answered the question right. Most important question of all. You see, they were walking to Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus has kind of envisioned him leading the pack. And behind him are the 12 disciples, and they're discussing what, who Jesus is and what people are saying about Jesus. And they say, well, some people say that he's Moses or he's Elijah or he's one of these prophets that's come back to life. And Jesus hears this, of course, 
And he turns around to them and he says, okay, I know what they say, but who do you say I am? And it was Peter who stood up and said in verse 16, you are the Christ, the the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. You see, Peter was not an evil man like some of the people that tried to manipulate us. But in that moment, he put his own desires ahead of God's. Peter tried to control Jesus because in that moment, he didn't see the bigger picture. He didn't see God's bigger plan for redemption. So Peter was just going off of what he thought and what he assumed was best. And that's never a good thing. It's exactly why you need to know when someone's trying to control you. They may be a really nice person. They may be a family member. Maybe it's your parent or your grandparent, your uncle or your aunt. Maybe it's your best friend, someone who loves you. But you need to recognize whether intentionally or unintentionally, they're trying to manipulate you, trying to make you do something, trying to pull you away from God's will, trying to get you to fill a need that you were never designed to meet. So you have to know your calling. This is my lane. This is my purpose. This is God's will for my life, and I am confident in this. Secondly, you have to know when someone's trying to control you. And here's the third thing. You need to know when to say enough when to say enough, when to draw a line in the sand. And this is where it really gets hard, doesn't it? Because I'm sure you and I have been there where we're trying to fix a relationship that's damaged because of this controlling nature. And we say no, but then we kind of go back on what we've said. But this is the right thing to do. It's the loving thing to do. And it's the response that Jesus had for Peter. Look back again at verse 23. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Now, that's kind of fun to say. Let's say that out loud together on three. One, two, three. Get behind me, Satan. Now, you said it like with smiles on your face. Let's say it like we're angry, like Jesus would have said it to Peter on three. One, two, three. Get behind me, Satan. You don't know the will of my father. You've got only human concerns in mind, not God's concerns. Now, this is a great phrase to remember when we're in the midst of that controlling situation. But I don't want you to leave here today and kind of twist my words. I don't want you to leave here today and maybe you're at uh, supper tonight at the dinner table and you're having a conversation with your mom or dad or even your grandparents and they bring up that same thing they always bring up, how they want you to go and do this, how they want you to work here, they want you to play that sport. And you look at your grandpa and say, get behind me, Satan. I don't want you to do that because that's not going to end well, right? But we do need to recognize when someone's trying to control us. Let's pretend just for a moment that this scenario ended differently. Jesus shares with his disciples that he must go away and suffer and die. Peter has the same response. Never, Lord. You are never going to do this. But just imagine if Jesus' identity got wrongly wrapped up in Peter's desire for him. Imagine if Jesus' identity in this moment got wrongly wrapped up in Peter's desire for him. 
So Peter threatens Jesus and says, never, Lord, you can't do this. If you go through with this, then I'm leaving the group. I'm defriending you on Facebook. I am deleting you from Twitter, right? I'm going to give you the silent treatment. We are no longer going to be friends. And Jesus says, oh, hold on, Peter. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm not going to do that, all right? Listen, I was going to die for all of mankind, but because that's going to upset you, I won't do it anymore, right? I want to make you happy. I'm sorry. Please, Peter, please don't leave my little band of men. Now, that's kind of silly to think about, isn't it? But just imagine if that's how it played out. Where would we be today? Utterly hopeless. Utterly hopeless. Thankfully, Jesus knew when to say enough. He knew that if he altered his calling from God, then the entire world would perish. He knew it was going to hurt Peter for a brief moment, but it was better for him in the long run. So what's our response? What can we do when someone threatens us, when someone makes us feel guilty, when someone prevents us from fulfilling God's will in our lives? Let me give you two quick thoughts that I think can be freeing if you are in this type of situation. The first is this. Every relationship you have, every single relationship, is either a result of what you've created or what you have allowed. Think about it. Every relationship you have is a result of what you've either created or allowed. Your marriage, your siblings, your children, the relationship with your boss and your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends. They're always some combination of what you have uh, intentionally, purposely created or what you have passively allowed. The neighbor that drives you crazy, they drive you crazy because you allow them to drive you crazy. Your father-in-law that gets on your nerves, same thing. Your spouse that you love, but yet you continue to allow them to speak to you in a way that they shouldn't. Every relationship is a combination of what you've created or what you've allowed. And here's the second thing. This is the action item. This is the thing I want you to do this week. If you don't like what you have, change what you expect and what you accept. Say that with me. If you don't like what you have, change what you expect and what you accept. Know when to say enough. Know when to draw the line in the sand. Jesus loved Peter, deeply loved Peter. He got the answer right when Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am? But just a moment later, verses later, Peter stuck his foot in his mouth. He tried to insert his will over God's, and that forced Jesus to have a tough conversation with Peter. That forced him to say, you're wrong, get behind me, Satan. Here are some examples of what you could say to the person that's controlling you. I'm not going to let you talk to me that way. I care about you, but this is unacceptable. Or, I know this is difficult, but because I love you, I'm not going to bail you out again and again and again. I've got to stop. Stop enabling you. Or, we don't use the divorce word in our marriage. You cannot continue to threaten me with that. Or if you've got kids, if it's your child, you could say, no, honey, you don't get that toy this time. You can throw a fit, you can yell, you can scream, but I cannot continue to reward your bad attitude and your bad behavior. 
Now, if you're a parent, then you know that's very difficult to do. That's difficult to follow through with. Much easier said than done. Bree, how many times have we said that? And the kids are in the grocery cart, and we're walking around the aisles, and they're screaming or they're crying, and they didn't get what they wanted. And after 10 minutes, every other person is staring at you in the aisle. So you kind of just throw it in there. Here, hush, just get it and be quiet, and you keep moving on, right? I've done that. I've done that. It's not the right thing to do, but that's what we tend to fall back on. You see, you and I cannot continue to accept words, actions, conduct that should not be tolerated. Expect more out of those whom you interact with. Expect more out of those who you choose to be in a relationship with. Because if they love you, then they're going to respect what you expect. If they love you, they're going to respect what you expect from them. Now, sometimes they may get upset and they may shout and pout. They may even double down on their dysfunctional behavior. But you need to love them enough to know when to say enough. Let's be honest, though, for a moment. Let's be real. It's very easy to talk about, quote, unquote, those people, right? Those people who are controlling, who manipulate. It's so much harder to look in the mirror and to realize that that's me. That's us. Jesus put it another way. He said it's easier to point out the speck of sawdust in someone else's eye, but not even realize you have a plank coming out of your own. And the same is true with this issue of control. I can sometimes be the king of control freaks. And if I were to guess, all of us struggle with that from time to time as well. The reason why we want people to do what we want them to do is because really we like to play God. We like to play God. We like to be in control. We like to take charge. We like to be the leader. But the problem is that you and I make a terrible God. We do. We're not all-knowing. We're not all-powerful. We're not almighty. Only he is. Think of it like this. Do you as a parent have the ability to control everything your child does? No. No. But does God have the ability to open and close doors that direct your child into what they could do in the future? Absolutely. Do you have the power to change your spouse and his or her behavior? No. No. <laughs> okay, elder. No, you do not have the power to control your spouse. But God does have the power to change him or her. Do you have the power to change someone's behavior and help them overcome an addiction that they have been struggling with for years? No, you don't. But God does have the power every single time through Jesus. I love this verse. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. You see, God has the power to change people every single day, but you and I do not. You and I do not. So I want to ask you this week to do a little exercise for me. I want you just to take a piece of pen, a piece of paper and a pen, and I want you to make a list. Jot down all of the things that stress you out 
all the things that make you anxious, all the things that put you on edge, all of the things that cause you fear, all of the people in your life that try to impose their will upon you. Now, for some of us, that's going to be four or five items long. For others of us who really struggle with this, you may fill up an entire page. Regardless of how long your list is, I want you to make the list, and then I want you to cross off, scratch out, black out every single thing that you cannot control, every single person that you can't control. I can guarantee that by the time you do that, there may only be one thing on that list, your name. Because the truth is the only thing we're able to control ever in this life is us, how we respond, how we react. We are the only ones that we can control. Everything else is outside of our hands. We can stop trying to be like God when we learn to give up control and let him do it and let him lead, surrender to him. In fact, that's how Jesus ends this dialogue with Peter. Look again at verse 24. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Read it out loud with me. It's on the bottom of your page. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. In other words, you cannot be your own God anymore. You cannot be your own God anymore. If you want to follow Jesus, then you will never be in control again because it's no longer about your will. It's all about his will in your life and in the lives of those you love. This matters because anytime we let someone wrongly control us or anytime that we intentionally or unintentionally try to control someone else, essentially we are playing God and that never has a happy ending. The only way that we can truly follow after Jesus and be his disciple is if we surrender our will to his, if we surrender our lives to him. As I said at the beginning, God's will for Jesus was to seek and save the lost. Who is that? It's you and me, it's us, it's everyone. He traded his life for ours. He shed his blood on a cross so that you and I would not have to. He redeemed our brokenness because that is what our sin did. It broke our relationship with God. So Jesus took the shame and the guilt and the punishment on his shoulders. And he bore it in his hands and he bore it in his feet. He bore it in the side as well. And this is something we get to celebrate every single week at a time we call communion. So go ahead and take out your cup and your juice now, please. Every Sunday, I love the fact that we pause and we remember the sacrifice of Jesus. This bread and this juice which represent his body and his blood. His body that was beaten and his blood that was poured out. So as we take this right now, I just ask that you take a moment to thank God that Jesus did not agree with Peter's demand. Thank God 
that Jesus fulfilled the will of his Father because that is the only way, the only way that we have an opportunity to spend eternity in heaven one day. Let's pray. God, you're so good to us. Much better than what we deserve. So God, right now, we humbly thank you for the gift of your son. God, there was no way we could have redeemed ourselves. It was only through the blood of Jesus because he paid it all for us. So God, we thank you. We commit our lives to you. God, give us the strength to deny ourselves daily and to take up our cross and follow after you. In Jesus' name.